Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. It was December 14th of 1944, and the American GI station in Bostonier were feeling good. It was six months after D-Day invasion at Normandy, and the Allies were confident in their position in the war. The surrender of the German army was in sight, but Adolf Hitler, of course, was not done fighting. Upset over the botched attempts of his assassination by Operation Valkyrie, Hitler was in a full mode of revenge. And TJ, I believe we have a couple of pictures uh, for this as well. In a last-ditch effort, Hitler launched an attack upon the Allies that resulted in the largest land battle in American military history. We know this battle as the Battle of the Bulge. Towards the end of the month-long battle, victory for the Germans seemed obtainable. Two regiments of the 106th Division were surrounded by the German infantry, which eventually led to the single largest field surrender of Allied troops in World War II. More than 6,800 American soldiers of the 422nd and 423rd Regiments were taken as prisoners. Over in the town of Malmody, another 84 American prisoners were killed by the Germans in the largest mass execution of the war. Just when it seemed like matters could not get any worse, the 101st Airborne Division found themselves pinned down and surrounded by the Nazi infantry. For five days, the Americans dug trenches. They relied upon locals for warm clothing and rations, and temperatures plunged to a negative four degrees leaving many soldiers dying of hypothermia and crippled by frostbite and trench foot. Trench foot being when your feet get wet for too long, causing severe health problems. When the medical supplies ran out, life-saving amputations were performed with kitchen supplies. At the darkest moment of the battle, the German soldiers issued an official call for surrender. General McAuliffe, of the 101st Airborne replied to the Nazi command with one simple words that has been iconic to us today, nuts. The 101st Airborne continued to hold their ground, and just as all hopes seemed lost, General George Patton directed his 350,000-man army north and punched a hole through the German flank. Rescue had come, and the tide of the Battle of the Bulge had officially changed. The 101st Airborne was saved. This Christmas season is a time to celebrate the entrance of hope. Just when it seemed like all hope was lost, God's silence was broken through a tiny baby named Jesus. The moment of his birth officially changed the destructive tide of sin. Hope had officially arrived. The Old Testament describes the narrative of the Israelites' constant battle between both man and God. We've talked about this multiple times. God in his sovereignty chose to fulfill his plan of redemption through the nation of Israel. This is first mentioned in God's response in Genesis chapter 3, in which uh, God responded to Satan after Satan convinced Adam and Eve to disobey God. God responded to Satan and said, Your head or your fatal blow will come through the seed of a woman. This indicated that God's plan of redemption would be through a human being. The fact that God would reveal this plan of redemption to the Jewish people was given through Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. God told Abraham that through Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. We understand that to be Jesus Christ. 
The events that led up to the fulfillment of God's promise were completely tumultuous for the nation of Israel. There was a constant cycle of persecution, captivity, and freedom, and it was a norm for the Jewish people. But even during the most trying of times, God sent glimmers of hope to the nation of Israel by way of the prophets. Each prophet was commissioned by God to point the people to the future Messiah. The celebration of Christmas is a reminder of God's fulfilled promise of redemption. You notice that there's no menorah inside of our church because we don't celebrate Hanukkah, we celebrate Christmas because the Messiah has come. The Old Testament is littered with prophetic passages regarding the coming Messiah, but perhaps one of the most famous passages is Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, in which the prophet states, For unto us a child is born. For unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And it's with that profound promise that the prophet delivers several descriptors of the coming Messiah, each name giving an essential characteristic of who Jesus Christ is. Imagine what that would have meant for the nation of Israel. Imagine what that means for us today. But the question is, What do these names mean? As we celebrate Advent this year, we're going to dive into the significance of each one of those names and how it pertains to Jesus Christ, and therefore, how it pertains to us. In the classic Shakespearean play, Romeo and Juliet, and if any of you have read through that, I'm sorry, but if you have, Shakespeare is not my favorite, but of course he's great at what he does. But if you've read through it, you understand that Juliet ponders her love with Romeo. Juliet is not allowed to associate with Romeo because he's a Montague, which was an enemy to the family of Juliet. And deep desperation to be with her Romeo, Juliet wonders how different things would be if Romeo had a different name. In this response, she ponders through this phrase, what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. And through that meaningful statement, Juliet reveals that it's not a name that changes the beauty of a person. Even if Romeo's name would have been different, which is something she desired, it would not change the beauty of who he is. Bottom line, a simple name does not make someone, but with Jesus, it's a little different. Usually people are given a name upon their birth. The name is not something that makes them. It's more of a descriptor of who they are, but it's not something that that makes them. In the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah uses names to describe the significance of who was to come. The Messiah, or the names associated with Jesus, perfectly describe the character of who he is. And as we pick apart the significance of each name, my prayer is that through our study together, through the names of Jesus Christ, we would walk away encouraged this Christmas season at the magnificent grace that has been displayed through us through Jesus Christ. And so it was with that in mind that we entitle our Christmas series, The Name. So take your Bibles with me, if you have not done so already, and turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. I open up with a story about the insurmountable odds that were given to the 101st Airborne in World War II. Just when it seemed like all hope was lost, Patton took his 350,000-man army, and he brought rescue to the 101st Airborne. This same type of scenario paints for us the backdrop of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. The work of Isaiah occurs during the time in which Israel had walked away from the Lord. Again, part of that progressive cycle. Isaiah was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Israel known as Judah. 
Judah at this particular time, or Israel, I should say, at this particular time, had been divided for roughly 200 years. Judah had experienced great prosperity underneath King uh, Uzziah. But along with great prosperity, Judah had experienced a severe and great uh, downgrade, or at least walking away from spiritually. God had raised up the prophet Isaiah to preach repentance and judgment to the southern kingdom of Judah. As we understand, Isaiah accepted that humbly and eagerly because he loved his people and he loved God. The first half of Isaiah, if you were to do a study through the entire book, is all about judgment. It's all about proclamation of repentance and judgment upon the people of Israel. But the second half of Isaiah deals with the hope. Hope with the nation of Israel and the future of the Messiah, but also hope for the entire world. Isaiah chapter 1, the prophet in a very uh, uh, poetical way, both prophetically and poetically, talks about the, uh, really the spiritual condition of the people of Israel. He describes just how poor they were in their spiritual condition. He actually calls them a harlot and he compares their spiritual condition uh, as that of a harlot in describing their spiritual adultery and turning away from the true God and focusing on the false gods. In Isaiah chapter 3, the prophet delivers their judgment that would come upon the people of Judah. The judgment of the people would come through their destruction by the surrounding nations. As we come to Isaiah 8, though, you see a, 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 an interesting twist in the narrative of Isaiah. God commanded Isaiah to go in unto his wife and to have a child. And in that child, he was to name that child Meher Shalahazbaz. Not a real popular name today. Matter of fact, it's the longest name in the entire Bible, but it was, it was a specific name that had a specific meaning. It was a two-part name. First off, you had Meher Shala, which, mean, which meant to speed the spoil, and Hasbaz, which meant to hasten the booty. This was a message to the Assyrian invaders to take over Judah quickly and completely. Judah eventually fell to the Assyrians in the year 701 B.C., directly fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah, as recorded in Isaiah chapter 8. But along with this prophetic message of destruction, Isaiah gives hope. Isaiah begins chapter 9 with this unique promise. He says in verse 1, you can look down with me. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who was distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan and Galilee of the Gentiles. You say, well, what is he talking about here? Naphtali and Zebulun, if you were to look at a map, were in the northernmost region of Judah. They were right on the border of, of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. They were the first two regions that fell to the king uh, of Assyria, to the Assyrian uh, invaders. Isaiah assures the people that God's judgment would be upon them, but it would not be upon them forever. Eventually, God would make that region glorious. So well, how will God do this? Well, of course, Isaiah states in verse 2 that the people who walked in darkness will see a great light, and that light will shine upon them. We know those verses to be in reference to the first arrival of Jesus Christ. Now, again, I'm just painting a background here to see how the Bible connects. If you were to look at verse 2 and, and keep that in mind and flip to Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 16, you're going to see the fruition of that promise. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 16, it says, Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, John the Baptist, not John the Apostle, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, and the regions of, you guessed it, Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat 
darkness have now seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region in the shadow of death, light has dawned. So everything that the Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah had prophesied was coming to fruition. Exactly how he prophesied it would. But going back to Isaiah chapter 9, the prophet continues to unfold the future fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. Look down at verse 3. Isaiah states, you have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. That was in direct reference to the promise that was given to Abraham to multiply his seed more than the sands of, this, uh, uh, the, sands of the seashore in Genesis chapter 22, verse 17. Right after Abraham followed in faith the command of God to sacrifice his son, we understand how that whole story went. He takes Isaac, he lays Isaac upon the altar. Just as he was about to kill his son, there was a ram that was provided for him in the thicket. God then rewarded Abraham in his great faith, and we see that in Genesis chapter 22, verse 17. It says that the angel of the Lord came to him and states, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing will I bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, as the sand which is on the seashore, and the descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 3, that prophetic reference there is in reference to the promise made to abraham see how the bible all connects together if you were to continue and look at verses four and five we see that eventually the lord will free the nation of israel out of the bondage of assyria babylon and the other foreign nations the prophet states for you have broken the yoke of this burden and the staff of his shoulder the rod of the oppressor as in the day of midian for every warrior sandal from the noisy battle the garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel to fire we understand that that will not completely come to pass until the battle of Armageddon, until Jesus Christ comes at the second coming and rules the earth through the millennial reign. But all of those verses provide a backdrop for us for Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. So if you look down with me as we read together what the prophet says. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Perhaps what has made this verse so famous is the Christmas song, or the least one that we play during Christmas season, written by Handel, which we know to be Handel's Messiah. As George Frederick Handel spent many hours with little food or sleep composing this wonderful masterpiece, he was overwhelmed at this story of redemption. Handel composes Isaiah chapter 9-6 into this wonderful melody of praise and adoration, making it perhaps one of his most famous masterpieces. But as we begin this series this morning, we are going to look at that first name that is given to Jesus Christ, which is the title of our message this morning, Wonderful Counselor. As you read the scripture, you may notice that in your version there, there's a comma in between Wonderful and Counselor. There's no comma in between the other names, but there's a comma there. If you were to look at that comma, that grammatical punctuation there, and also listen to the song by Handel's Messiah, many of us would assume that that is two different names that are given to Jesus Christ. Well, that's probably not the best way to interpret this particular passage. Because if you were to look at the other three names that were given, you'll see two names that are given together. You have an adjective followed by the noun. Same thing here. The word wonderful is an adjective that means marvelous that we would see as describing counselor. And so we would read that as one name, meaning wonderful counselor. As one commentator describes it, this is extremely important to have this name. 
because the Messiah, given that name as Wonderful Counselor, was contrasting really the incompetency of Judah's current king. At this particular time, they had King Ahaz, who was an ungodly king that ruled completely against the uh, advice and counsel that was given to him by Isaiah, through, uh, by God through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah or Ahaz completely ignored what Isaiah had to say, and as a result, he bypassed Isaiah's advice, and he uh, appealed or at least uh, asked the king of Assyria for protection. As a result, Assyria defeated Syria and Israel, eventually taking over the people of Judah, all because of the incompetency of this particular king. If you were to look through history, what you see is eventually Assyria introducing the false gods into the temple, which was a completely blasphemous move on behalf of God. And so you had Israel, or at least Judah, that was ruled by a completely wicked and incompetent king. And so when Isaiah bursts onto the scene and refers to Jesus Christ as being this wonderful counselor, they would completely understand the, the difference between who Jesus was versus the king that they currently had. Given the context of this prophecy, that name, Wonderful Counselor, is referring to the rulership and the reign of Jesus Christ. It first applies to the nation of Israel, but secondarily, it applies to the entire world. In fact, all of these names are about the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ. Isaiah says that the government will be upon his shoulder. Again, this is the prophetic reference into uh, really the rule of Jesus Christ for the entire world, which will happen at the second coming of Christ. But in these names, we find great comfort. Just in that name, Wonderful Counselor, we're going to draw three encouraging facts here this morning. First off, what we see is that in God, there is great knowledge. In God, there is great knowledge. The reason why Israel was in the state that they were in was, of course, because of sin, but because they were led by a king who had very limited knowledge. And in the very limited knowledge that he had, he completely refused any advice that was given to him by godly counsel. He wanted nothing to do with that. And so they were in a situation, and some of us can relate to rulers that have led in um, lack of knowledge and has gotten us into certain situations that us and other countries have been in, right? And we look at this name, Wonderful Counselor, it speaks to the complete, full, and perfect knowledge of God, helping us understand that in his rule, it, everything will be working completely to the good of who God is, because he's not operating out of any kind of lack of knowledge. We trust people's knowledge. We read articles that are written by experts on a particular area or field of study. We look at this specific coronavirus and we listen to those that have been particular experts in their field of study when it comes to science and epidemiology. We listen to what they have to say and we apply that because we trust the experts' knowledge in their particular field. That word counselor here, it means advice or guide. Part of what makes God such a wonderful counselor is the fact that God is fully and completely knowledgeable in all things. We call this full and complete knowledge omniscience. The word omniscience is a character description, an attribute of God that means all-knowing. There is no other creation, no other creature that ever exists or ever will exist that possesses this particular attribute. There is nothing that has occurred or will occur that is outside the knowledge of God. David speaks to this overwhelming nature of God's omniscience in Psalm 139. David cries out, O Lord, you have searched me, and you have known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. And you laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. 
It is high, and I cannot attain it. This type of knowledge is both wonderful and overwhelming. It's wonderful in the fact that God knows our hearts and everything about us, and so therefore he will not allow anything to come into our life that would be too much for us to handle because he knows our weaknesses, he knows our limitations. And so there would be nothing that will come into our life that would hurt us, ultimately. But it's overwhelming in the fact that there is nothing that we can do to hide from God. God knows everything about us, and so we're condemned from the very start. We're condemned from the very beginning of time. But yet the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, that there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. We celebrate Christmas based upon this true fact that we are not condemned in Jesus so when it comes to this knowledge of God, we can rest in his perfect rule. The author of Hebrews states in Hebrews chapter 4 that the word of God is living. It is powerful and is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of the soul and spirit and the joints of the marrow. It is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And so just because somebody may fool us into thinking one thing when in reality they're trying to get something else, they can't fool God. God's complete knowledge allows him the ability to completely rule, which supports the fact that God is our wonderful counselor. But in God, there is great knowledge, which means that because there's a great knowledge in God, number two, there is great wisdom. There is great wisdom. You cannot have wisdom without knowledge. In fact, Webster's Dictionary defines wisdom as a knowledge and a capacity to make due use of it. When applied to this name, wonderful counselor, God gives great wisdom that allows him the ability to rule and complete perfectness. Even Solomon in all of his glory pales in comparison to the wisdom of God. It's going to be up there on your screen, but in Job chapter 12, Job, and again in a poetical form being one of the poetical books in our Bible, describes the effect of God's perfect counsel and his rulership. Read with me as I read out loud. Job says, with him are wisdom and strength. He has counsel and understanding. If he breaks a thing down, it cannot be rebuilt if he imprisons a man, there can be no release. If he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the earth. With him are strength and prudence. The deceived and the deceiver are his. He leads counselors away, plundered, and he makes fools of the judges. He loosens the bonds of kings and binds their waist with a belt. He leads princes away, plundered, and overthrows the mighty. He deprives the trusted ones of speech, and he takes away the discernment of the elders." He pours contempt on princes and disarms the mighty. He uncovers the deep things out of darkness and he brings the shadow of death to light. He makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and guides them. He takes away the understanding of the chiefs of the people of the earth and he makes them wander in a pathless wilderness. They grope in the dark without light and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. In God's wisdom, there is nothing that happens in this life, on this earth, that do not first pass through the wisdom and sovereign hands of God. But here's the best part about this whole wisdom that God offers. As Christians, we have access to this complete knowledge and wisdom that God possesses. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, In whom, referring to Jesus Christ, are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The exact wording of this phrase is extremely important because a false philosophy had crept into the church of Colossae. And if you guessed it, you probably would guess Gnosticism, which seems to be the overarching philosophy that crept in all the churches in the New Testament, much like we read in 2 John. 
Well, that particular teaching believed or taught that knowledge that Jesus Christ is talking about here through the Apostle Paul is only achieved by the elite, those that had the money, those that were chosen specifically. That's the only ones that could achieve this type of knowledge. Paul comes in and says, that is absolutely not the case. You could be the poorest person in the world, but if you are a follower of Christ, in Christ, you have access to the very knowledge that Jesus Christ possesses the wisdom that we need for spiritual maturity. But the problem was, in the church of Colossae, just like it is with us today, they were too busy looking for that knowledge everywhere else, and that satisfaction and that wisdom everywhere else, except for the one that possesses that, which is Jesus Christ. In his book, Soul on Fire, Eli Wessel tells a remarkable tale. In faraway Krakow, in days when sleep was often disturbed by dreams, there lived one Isaac, son of Yekel. Isaac was a poor man whose family seldom ate their fill. One night, in a vivid dream, he saw the distant city of Prague. He saw a river flowing through the city, and underneath a particular bridge, he saw a buried treasure. When he woke up the next morning, the dream had not faded. Its clear and vivid images remained etched on his mind, and that night, the dream returned. On the next night, every night for two weeks, Isaac had the same dream in which we saw the city of Prague, the river, the bridge, and the buried treasure hidden beneath the bridge. And finally, after multiple dreams, he decided to walk to Prague to see for himself if the dream might be real. After several days, he arrived in the city. Even though he had never been there, he recognized it and knew well from his dreams. He found the bridge, he went underneath to search for the treasure, and then suddenly he was grabbed firmly by the back of the neck by a soldier who dragged him away to prison for interrogation. The soldier sat him in a chair and said, What are you doing prowling around underneath that bridge? Not knowing what else to say, Isaac decided to tell the truth. He said, I had a dream that there was buried treasure underneath that bridge, and I was looking for it. Immediately, the soldier burst into mocking laughter. You foolish man, don't you know that you can't believe what you see in your dreams? Why, for the last two weeks, I myself have had a dream that every night that faraway city in the city of Krakow in the house of some man by the name of Isaac, son of Yekel, there was a treasure buried beneath the sink in his house. Wouldn't it be the most idiotic of actions if I were to go all the way to the Krakow to look for some man that doesn't exist? Or there may be thousands of Isaacs, son of Yekel. I could waste a lifetime looking for a treasure that isn't there. With great laughter, the soldier stood him up, opened the door, and gave him a good kick and sent him out on his way. Naturally, Isaac, son of Yekko, walked back to Krakow, back to his own house where he looked beneath the sink in his own kitchen. And there he found the treasure buried there, living to a ripe old age as a rich man. The treasure that he was looking for, that he was dreaming about, was right there at home all along. The treasure that we so desperately seek when it comes to wisdom, when it comes to knowledge, when it comes to satisfaction, when it comes to uh, contentment, as Christians, has been with us all along. It's all completely found in Jesus Christ. As Christians, we do not have to look anywhere else. Wisdom and knowledge and understanding can only be found in Christ. That name, Wonderful Counselor, speaks to this full and complete knowledge of Jesus Christ. But God, in this full, complete knowledge, has full wisdom, giving Him the power to rule in complete perfection. So because God has a complete knowledge, He therefore has great wisdom. And because he has great wisdom, finally, number three, in God, we know that there is great guidance. There is great guidance. How wonderful it is to know 
that in God we have guidance for every area of our life. And not just any kind of guidance, perfect guidance. The very name Wonderful Counselor speaks to this nature and God perfectly guiding his children. We know the verse well. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and lean not unto your own understandings. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy path. But we don't want to do that, because we can't see God. Oftentimes we try to figure things out ourselves, because it's, uh, it's easier to do that, at least in our own minds, because it's hard for us to trust someone or something that we can't see. But the Bible says, trust in God. Perhaps one of the most practical exhortations of God's guidance is found in James chapter 1. We talked about this earlier this year, but it's always a good reminder. Take your Bibles in closing and flip back with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Within these verses, James begins with this command, and then he follows this command with a characteristic. And what we see here is how can we practically take this wisdom that God provides and allow it to guide us in our life, especially and particularly in the midst of our trials. The first thing that James tells us to do in this passage is that when we're caught up in the midst of a trial, we want to seek God's guidance or to receive God's guidance. The first thing we have to do is we have to seek God's face. Seek God's face. Look down at verse 5. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally without reproach, and it will be given to him. James says that if any of you lacks wisdom, then simply ask God. God's wisdom is ultimate and never-ending. It's God's full and complete wisdom that gives him that name, Wonderful Counselor. Within this context, what James says is that we need the wisdom of God to help us see past the struggle of the trial and see the purpose of the trial. I want us to understand this. God allows trials to come into our life for one reason, and that is to teach us something. God allows trials to come into our life in order to chasten his children. Perhaps we've walked away from God. We're too busy living our life. And, and we understand that God chastens those whom he loves. And so as children, as God's children, sometimes it is necessary for us to be chastened in order for God to draw our attention back to himself. Because that is the best place that we can absolutely be as Christians is in the center of God's will. But that's not always the case. We look at the story of Job. Job didn't sin. In order to receive all those trials that he was facing, his friends wanted him to think that, but that wasn't the case. See, sometimes God allows trials to come into our life in order to teach us something, in order to mold and shape us into the image of his son. When James tells us here to seek the wisdom of God, he's not necessarily telling us to seek the answer to that trial, but rather to look past that trial in order to see what God is trying to teach us in the midst of that trial. But sometimes it's hard for us to see that because we just assume that God has abandoned us. God won't listen to us because God has walked away from us. That's why I'm in this trial to begin with because God simply is not listening and not answering my request and my plea for help. But see, sometimes God allows trials to come into our life in order to grow our faith, to help us realize and understand that just because we're going through a dark time doesn't mean that God has walked away. Maybe he's just silent doesn't mean that he has abandoned us. When my son was first born, we seemed to have more of an issue with Kaysen than we did with Emerson. And I, I can only use my children as an example for so much longer because as they get older, I won't be able to do that. So I'm going to use all the opportunity I have now is why they're younger and they don't think about it. When he was a little baby, we had an issue with him and crying when we would put him to bed and walk out of the room. He slept in our room for the first few months of, of, of his birth, but when we put him in his own room, he would cry. 
we would walk back into the room and we would give them this passing and we would leave and you know all those books stay wait for 15 minutes it's like the longest 15 minutes of your life letting your child cry you don't want to hear your child cry but eventually after a few days and after a few weeks he stopped crying well what happened Kaysen realized that just because his parents weren't in the room did not mean that his parents had abandoned him. See, earlier in his uh, more immature state of his babiness, of his baby years, he assumed that we had walked out of the room and completely left him, and so he cried for us. He didn't want to be alone in the dark. But as we continue to come back and minister to him and love on him and care for him and give him his passing and take care of him, help him understand that, listen, we haven't gone anywhere, he grew in that knowledge of who his parents were. Until the point where he eventually got to the point where he trusted us and knew that when we walk out of the room, that doesn't mean that we've left. We're just right there. See, God, in our trials that we experience, he's pushing us and he's growing our faith to help us understand that just because he hasn't answered us right away doesn't mean he's abandoned us. He's still there. We have to continue to seek his face. And so James says that if any of you lacks wisdom, he follows with that promise. He says, if any of you lack wisdom, ask God, and then what? God will give to all liberally and without reproach. James says that God gives to all people, not just certain people, but everyone that asks. God does not play favorites when it comes to distributing his wisdom. But not only that, James says that God not only gives wisdom, he distributes wisdom liberally and without reproach. The term without reproach indicates that God gives wisdom to all people regardless of their previous record, regardless how many times they've messed up with it in the past. He still gives wisdom to those that are seeking So we can be confident that when we seek the face of God, pleading for his wisdom while we're stuck in the midst of the trial, that God will give it without reservation. But God continues to test us, not because God is mean, but because God is looking to grow our faith. And so what do we do? We trust God by seeking his face. But number two, as we continue to seek his face, or letter B, we must give God our full allegiance. We seek his face, we give him our full allegiance in that process. James says in verse 6 that when we ask God for wisdom, we must ask in faith with no doubting. He then compares that to a doubting man, which is a wave of a sea that is driven and tossed about by the wind. At first it seems as if James says that it does no good to pray to God without having faith that God will provide the wisdom. As one commentator puts it, the average Christian may say, well, that rules me out. I need wisdom, but I doubt that God will give it to me. And since I'm doubting, he won't give it to me. So therefore, that confirms that he won't. It's not what James is saying here. What James is saying here is that you give and you, 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 or at least you seek wisdom in faith. Therefore, without doubting, but what are you doubting in? It's doubting in the goodness of God. When you give God your full allegiance, it's not saying, God, I'm questioning you. Because there's all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see character after character that question God. The whole book of Lamentations is about the prophet questioning God. Jeremiah crying out to God, questioning why, God, are you allowing this to happen to your people? There's nothing in there that says it's wrong to do that. But what that's talking about is it's a lack of faith in God only. See, it's okay to question God, but if you were to ask God for wisdom, but yet at the same time you're like, I'm going to trust God, but I'm also going to trust myself. I'm going to kind of trust God a little bit, but trust myself a little bit. That's what he's talking about. He's saying that when you trust God and you ask God for wisdom, you must be willing to give God your complete life, your complete trust. Don't have one foot with God and one foot with yourself. That's what he's talking about there. 
It's a complete, full allegiance to God alone. God, I'm questioning you. I don't understand what's going on, but God, I trust you. Just show me the way. I'm not going to trust on my own self to try to figure this out. God, what are you doing? God, you are the wonderful counselor. God, I seek your face. I rest in your perfect knowledge and your wisdom, so therefore, God, guide me. That's what James is talking about here. Verse 7, it says, For not let not man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord if he's willing to only trust in God partly and not completely. So as we close this morning, when it comes to this name of wonderful counselor, we can rest in the fact that through Jesus Christ, the earth will be ruled in that full and complete knowledge. Because God, or Jesus, has the full and complete knowledge. He has full and complete wisdom. And as Christians, we can trust in the full and complete wisdom of God to guide us in every area of our life. And we, too, can be like that prophet Paul, or at least the, the apostle Paul, when he proclaims in Romans chapter 11, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor? No one. And so we can go to him with everything in our life. We trust God alone and we praise God as the wonderful counselor.